Father, anytime we look into your word, we are absolutely dependent upon your Holy Spirit to speak truth into our lives. So we ask you to do that right now. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, the fact of the matter is that great civilizations do not last. That's just the history of this world. That great civilizations do not, do not last. Inevitably, every great civilization, every great nation, every great culture slides into destruction. Um, that's just the lesson of history. And, and as you look at historians and sociologists, what they've done is they've identified what they would call eight stages that every great civilization or great nation goes through from birth to demise or death. I want to look at those real quickly as we jump into the book of Micah this morning in our study of the minor prophets, because I think it's very appropriate for the study of Micah. It's also very appropriate for the United States on July 4th, 2021. Uh, the first stage that any civilization begin, begins with, they go from bondage to spiritual growth. I mean, you see, great civilizations are formed in the crucible of hard times. So the children of Israel, think about it. Uh, they were the sons and the daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and great-grandsons and so forth of Jacob. They spent 400 years in Egypt in slavery. Hard times. Uh, you look at our own country. We came out of an era of bondage to the tyranny of England. And so there's that first stage from bondage to spiritual growth. The next stage that every great civilization goes through is that of from spiritual growth to great courage. And boy, you see that in the Israelites as well. Think about those wilderness wandering years of the Israelites. That was school for them. They were learning from God during that day and time. So that when they entered the promised land, you see exhibited through Joshua and through the judges who followed, Samson and Deborah and so forth, you see great courage that was necessary to help them to conquer and to settle the land of promise. Um, America was founded on the courage of many great men back in the 18th century. Uh, we call them our, our forefathers here, here in America. Third stage then is from courage to liberty. You see, under the leadership of great leaders such as Samuel and Saul and King David, Israel was finally free of their enemies and the kingdom of, of Israel expanded to some of its largest uh, parameters. And liberty and, and, and justice emerged. That was the real heyday for the nation of Israel. Well, so too here in America. You think about it. Through the courage of our early fathers in this country, uh, we, after the Revolutionary War, found liberty that was there. And we became uh, a nation where liberty was for all. The fourth stage then comes from liberty to abundance, from liberty to abundance. You know, for Israel, her most abundant days were under King Solomon. Um, the nation was blessed. Its, its borders were enlarged. Uh, this was the zenith of the nation of Israel during the days of, of King Solomon, a, great, a day of great abundance. Well, many of us here today, my, my generation and so forth, have seen those great days of abundance here in America. There is nothing like the United States of America in those years following World War II, 
when what's called the greatest generation really burgeoned and, and America became a world leader, became an abundant nation. Um, and these facts are true, folks, because um, liberty ushers in greater prosperity because there's a civilization that's still functioning with the virtue of sacrifice and hard work. That, that was the key to that generation in World War II, sacrifice and hard work. I, I don't know if you've ever really stopped and thought about that our entire nation was mobilized to fight World War II. Housewives working in factories, building airplanes and tanks and, and all sorts of things. It was, a, it was a, a generation and a time when our country sacrificed, when our country was not afraid of hard work. And so the result of that is we had a, an abundant, abundant time in our country. The fifth step then is that um, we go from abundance to complacency. Abundance to complacency. You see, whether we want to admit it or not, I think that as America today, we're kind of living on the fumes of the sacrifice and the hard work of the previous generations. Uh, people today are less and less willing to make sacrifices and, um, and do the hard work that's needed to sustain our nation. And so, you know, we move from ab abundance to complacency. And to be complacent means to be self-satisfied and increasingly unaware of the serious trends that are undermining uh, the health and the ability to, th to thrive in this nation. You know, everything looks fine, so therefore it must be fine, okay? Um, boy, that's the picture you see in the Minor Prophets as, we were, as we're working through the Minor Prophets this summer. You, you see that everything was fine, or at least they thought it was fine. And uh, boy, that's certainly a picture of America today. Our foundations, our resources, our infrastructures, and all the necessary virtues are all crumbling in our nation. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's happening to us. You know, virtue and discipline and ideals have faded into the past. And if you raise the alarm about what's happening in our country, what happens? Well, those who are complacent will label you as extremists, right? Yeah. So then you move in the sixth step from complacency to apathy. That, that word apathy <laughs> comes from the Greek, and it refers to a lack of interest in or a lack of passion for the things that once brought life and, and inspiration uh, to a person. Uh, there's this, just this growing lack of attention and even a dismissal of the disturbing trends that are, that are present. People stop caring or, or, or stop thinking about the sacrifices of previous generations and they lose that sense that they must work for and contribute to the common good. Boy, that was true in, I, in Israel, in the Northern Kingdom. That was true in the Southern Kingdom of Judah during the days of Hosea and Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's true today. The seventh step then is from apathy to dependence. Apathy to dependence. Listen to these words that I found and uh, see if they don't ring true to you. Increasing numbers of people lack the virtue and zeal 
necessary to work and contribute. The suffering and the sacrifices that built the culture are now a distant memory. As discipline and work increasingly seem too hard, dependence grows. The collective culture now tips in the direction of dependence. Having lived on the sacrifices of others for years, the civilization now insists that others must solve their woes. This ushers in a growing demand for governmental collective solutions. This in turn deepens dependence as solutions move from personal virtue and local family-based sacrifices to centralized ones. That was Israel. That was Judah. That's America. And then that last step is from dependence back to bondage. You know, as we look at the, the book of Micah today, we're going to find that Israel and Judah were really on the front porch of going into bondage. In fact, Israel at the time of Micah was already opening the front door. They were headed for bondage in, in many ways. And the question is, are we as a nation in a similar position? Is that where we, we find ourselves today? I mean, uh, there's no doubt, I think, that we're on the backside of this cycle that, that we're talking about here, just like the ancient nations of Israel and, and Judah were. And uh, <clears throat> only time will, will tell as to when. I didn't say if. As to when, just like Judah, just like Israel, we will cease to exist or we'll find ourselves in bondage to others doing whatever they want to at, at their will, against our will. See, these are the steps that really led to the time that Micah the prophet prophesied. So if you have your Bibles, open them please to Micah chapter 1. And you've got, uh, for those of you here in the, in the worship center, you have notes that have the verses printed out. They won't be on the screen. And for those of you watching online, get your Bible. Run, run get your Bible real quick and uh, turn to Micah chapter 1. So find Isaiah and then go to Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah. It's right there about four or five books after Isaiah, okay? So Micah chapter 1. <clears throat> Six chapters in Micah. We're going to cover them all, but not verse by verse by verse by verse, okay? Unless you brought lunches, and then we can do that, okay? All right. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Micah of Moresheth during the years when Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. The visions he saw concerning both Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Micah's ministry was primarily to Judah, the southern kingdom. But he had some things to say to the, to the uh, northern kingdom uh, of Israel. Samaria is mentioned here. That's the capital of, of Samaria, uh, the capital of the northern kingdom. Uh, excuse me, the capital of Israel. So Micah's promises in this whole book were really designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. Uh, Micah has been called the conscience of Israel and, and Judah. And his message was designed to really pick, uh, to prick the conscience of those who had long abandoned the integrity of the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
Now, Micah prophesied in the years following the reign of Jeroboam II, who was king of the northern kingdom, and also at the very end of the time of King Uzziah, who was king of the southern kingdom of Judah. So the time period for Micah's ministry would be about 735 to about 715 B.C. And uh, just keep in mind that during his lifetime, during the years of his prophetic ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel fell. And he watched it fall. So both Israel and, uh, and the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II and, and also then Judah, the southern kingdom under King Uzziah had experienced a long period of prosperity, of abundance. We, we talked about that. Unfortunately, it was also a period of rapid decline politically, socially, morally, religiously. And so following the death of Jeroboam II, he died in about 753 B.C., <clears throat> um, the history of the northern kingdom, uh, as one writer put it, was a tale of unmitigated disaster. As you look at that, Israel's internal sickness just exploded. And so in 25-year period, you had five different kings on the throne of the northern kingdom. And all but one of them was assassinated to bring somebody else to the throne. One guy lasted for one month. Another guy lasted for six months. And so it was a time of just chaos. This was a time also when the Assyrian Empire was on the resurgence. They were growing stronger. And so within 25 years after King Jeroboam II died, the nation of Israel was wiped off the map. The nation existed no more. The picture in Judah was just about as dark during this period of time because following Uzziah, his son Ahaz came to the throne. And Ahaz was wicked, was a wicked king. Uh, he was involved in gross sins of, of idolatry and, and all sorts of sexual promiscuity. Why, uh, Ahaz even sacrificed his son, killed his son, to the god Malak. That was how wicked he was. And really, only the reforms, the religious reforms that came under Ahaz's son, who was Hezekiah, and his grandson, who was Josiah, that would, would follow. That was the only reason that Judah was spared at this point in time, the agony of God's discipline. So that's the background upon which Micah prophesied. And so this book is going to be a collection of about 20 different prophecies that, uh, that are put together. And what's neat about this book is that they're arranged in such a way that the prophecies kind of form a cycle, three different cycles of doom and gloom and then hope. Doom and gloom and hope. And then a third cycle, doom and gloom and hope. Um, and so they, they deal with all that... Israel and Judah were facing in the way of God's judgment, but they also dealt with hope for the people of God. So let's look at round one, this first cycle of chapters one and two. <clears throat> now, one of the things about each one of the cycles in the book of, of Micah is it begins with the Hebrew verb, listen or hear. And so he starts out by saying hear, and it's a call to listen with understanding to the Lord's message. And the first round of, 
of gloom and or doom and, and hope here is addressed to both Israel and to Judah. Because and what Micah is saying is God is coming to judge the wickedness of both nations. So look at in verse 2, as we look at the doom and gloom upon Israel and Judah. Uh, Micah 1, verse 2, attention or listen here. Let all the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. In other words, we're calling you to be witnesses here. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. That's the place of God's throne. Look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax into a fire, like water pouring down a hill. And so here's this picture of the Lord, and he's coming as a fierce warrior to bring judgment against his people. Now, why is, why is he doing that? Well, look at verse 5. Micah writes, and he says, why is this happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel, yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital. So I, the Lord, will make the city of Samaria a heap of ruins. Her streets will be plowed up for planting vineyards. I will roll the stones of her walls into the valley below, exposing her foundation. Samaria was built on a hill. And so the picture there is I'm going to destroy the city and her, all the stones in her, in her buildings and her walls will be rolled into the valley. See, God, through Micah here, is declaring the destruction of the capital city of Samaria. Uh, he said that the, the root of the sin of the nation is in its capital city of Samaria. And this prophecy that Micah gives is literally fulfilled in 722 B.C. when the Assyrian armies came in and, and absolutely destroyed the city and led the whole nation captive, led them away into exile in 722-721 B.C. But Samaria wasn't the only one who was being condemned and being judged here. There's a focus also on Judah. So pick up reading at verse 8. This is Micah talking, and, and he's, he's talking about mourning as somebody who's grieving the loss of, 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 of a loved one or whatever. He says, therefore, I will mourn and lament. That was some words that expressed grief. I will walk around barefooted and naked. That's a picture of grieving in that, in that day and time. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl, for my people's wound is too deep to heal. <clears throat> it has reached into Judah even to the gates of Jerusalem. So now, Micah is going to be talking about the coming army that's going to invade Judah. And in verses 10 through 16, he's going to list uh, 10 different cities that really probably would be in the path of any kind of an invading army, and he's going to pronounce woes against them. And, and I wish we had the time to, to look at it, uh, because every one of those cities is a word play. There's a word play that's based on the name of the city. Look in a study Bible sometime and, and just look at those verses and how the word play with the name of the town is, is there. But each one of these cities would feel the blunt of the Assyrian army as it, as it marched into the land. Now, that was not going to happen until about 20 years after Samaria had fallen. And fortunately for, for Judah, 
it would only be a short-lived invasion. The, the Assyrians would not succeed in conquering the land, and God would give to Judah a reprieve of about 135 years until again an army invaded the Babylonian army and destroyed Jerusalem, carried all the people away captive. Now, why again is Judah being judged? Well, we see that beginning in chapter 2 because there's a listing here of those who are being judged and the reason why the judgment is coming. He begins in verse 1 by talking about some uh, some, uh, land grabbers, people who are just stealing houses for any pretense. It says, What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man out of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. But this is what the Lord says. I will repay your evil, uh, your evil with evil. You won't be able to pull your neck out of the, the noose. You will no longer walk around proudly, for it will be a terrible time. See, the motto of these wealthy culprits... <clears throat> is that of might makes right. I mean, they use their power. They use their position to steal whatever they wanted whenever they wanted to do that. But coming out of that chapter, there is two verses that give some hope for the few, hope for the remnant. It it ends as every one of these cycles with a picture of hope. The gloom and doom first and then the words of hope. There would be a remnant of Judah who would be restored into the land after a time of exile. So verse 12 and 13. Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy's cities, back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. Here is is the sovereign Lord, and he's being pictured as a royal shepherd who who gathers his people into the pen, like a shepherd would gather sheep into the pen. And then he goes on to say, as their king, he will lead them out again through the city gate of of the enemy, back to their own land. Folks, this is a clear prophecy of the coming Messiah and the messianic kingdom that that lies ahead. We're going to see this more in in the book of Micah. But here's the beginning prophecy of the millennial kingdom that will come at the end of end of time. Now, Micah now gave this just glimpse, two verses of hope. And now he's going to move back into the second round of doom and gloom. And uh, and, and then he'll end with some hope. So we begin with round two of doom and hope. And again, this cycle in, in chapter three begins with that Hebrew verb, hear or listen. And, and one of the things about this second round of gloom and doom and hope is that it stands in sharp contrast to the first cycle. Because in the first cycle, we did almost two entire chapters of doom with just two verses of hope. But in the second cycle, you're going to have one chapter of doom, and then we're going to have two chapters of hope for the future. So uh, as, as you look at it, it, uh, it really begins by laying the blame 
for Judah's wickedness and spiritual poverty at the feet of, of really several groups of people who are responsible for their, their wickedness. So it starts with the politicians. Does that surprise you? I'm sorry. Um, Micah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. He's, um, this is Micah writing. I said, listen, you leaders of Israel. This is really God speaking through uh, Micah. I said, listen, you leaders of Israel. You are supposed to know right from wrong, but you are the very ones who hate good and love evil. I have those words underlined here in my notes. That doesn't describe leadership in America, does it? You should know right from wrong, but you hate good and you love evil. Let's go on. Verse 2. You skin my people alive and tear the flesh from their bones. Yes, you eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones. You chop them up like meat for the cooking pot. Then you beg the Lord for help in times of trouble. Do you really expect him to answer? After all the evil you have done, he won't even look at you. In other words, God is describing these leaders, these politicians. He says, you're behaving like cannibals. Instead of practicing justice, you hate what is good and you love what is evil. I could just say, God help us as a nation, you know. Because of this, God will not listen to Judah. I pray that's not the case for America. Second group that's, that he indicts is that of false prophets. People who are speaking in the Lord's name, but speaking falsely. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says. You false prophets are leading my people astray. You promise peace for those who give you food, but you declare war on those who refuse to feed you. See, in this section, he's condemning those false prophets. And, and what Micah is doing is, he says, you're basically prophesying for money. You're prophesying for what you get out of it. If somebody is good to you and gives you food to eat or, or pays you well, you'll say whatever they want to hear. And if they don't, then you'll prophesy evil against them. You see, the truth is in, in Micah's day, and perhaps our day as well, these prophets hadn't really heard from God at all. <clears throat> they were just speaking their own opinions. I mean, in Micah's day, these false prophets were preaching words of their own creation. One, one writer called them, they were speaking a theology of oppression, which really, they were trying to rationalize the injustice that was going on in the nation with religious arguments. Uh, they, were, they were using false teachings and false visions and so forth. And the whole intent of their preaching was to salve or to ease the conscience of those who were being so wicked and so unjust in oppressing the poor so that they could enjoy their wealth without any sense of guilt. That's what these false prophets were do. Micah, on the other hand, said, look, though, at my ministry, I'm not a false prophet. Look at verse 8. But as for me, Micah said, <clears throat> I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. I am filled with justice and strength to boldly declare Israel's sins and rebellions. The false prophets just wanted to ease everybody's uh, conscience in the midst of their sin. Micah said, nope. I am here to proclaim sin and God's judgment on the land. So <clears throat> the blame for Judah's impending doom 
fell on these false prophets and, and the corrupt leaders. And as a result, just like Israel in chapter 1, so Micah predicts the destruction of the nation of Judah as well. Look at verse 12. Because of you, because of your sinfulness, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. Now, <clears throat> here's something quite interesting. And really, folks, this is so affirming of the unity of Scripture. Um, because this prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, it's called Mount Zion here, but that's, that's Jerusalem. This prophecy is repeated over a hundred years later in 609 uh, B.C. by the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 26, 18. Uh, and he's talking about back in the day. This is Jeremiah saying, well, back in the day, they said, remember when Micah of Moresheth prophesied during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah? He told the people of Judah, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. And in the very next verse, here in Jeremiah chapter 26, there's an implication that, excuse me, an implication that Micah's prophecy was uh, resulted in a nationwide revival that happened under Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, and his grandson, uh, Josiah. Verse 20, uh, Jeremiah 26, verse 19. But did King Hezekiah and the people kill him, meaning Micah, for saying this? No, they turned from their sins and worshiped the Lord and begged him for mercy. Then the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had pronounced against them. So we are about to do ourselves great harm. That's the people in Jeremiah's day who were about to kill Jeremiah for his prophecies. And they said, don't do that. Remember Micah and God relented. Maybe that's what could happen here. Well, Micah's words of that, Israel, that uh, Jerusalem is going to be plowed under and left as a, as a heap of ruins finally came true in 596 B.C. when the Babylonian armies under King Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> destroyed Jerusalem and left it as a mound of ruins. And yet, <clears throat> even as Micah was speaking these words of gloom and doom, now he's going to suddenly shift to words of hope for the, for the future. And that starts with chapter 4. I mean, here immediately, I mean, he's announced the fall of Jerusalem, and now the very next verse comes a statement of restoration. Micah 4, verse 1. In the last day, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and the people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion, his word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between peoples and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. These verses no doubt speak of a millennial kingdom of God's Messiah, that time when God's Messiah will reign over the earth at the end of time. 
But notice here also that the worshipers in this newly restored temple will be both Jews and Gentiles. And their desire is to go up to the temple of the Lord to learn God's ways, to learn the ways of God. That word ways is a term that's used a number of times in Old Testament Scripture. And it really refers to God's plans in the moral government of the world. In other words, how God's going to govern the world. That's His ways. But it also talks about how His people should walk in order to please Him. And so when we know God's ways, you know, Moses prayed and said, God, show me your ways. That's what he's talking about here. In the book of Psalms, David talks about, uh, you know, knowing God's ways. When we know God's ways, we will know how to walk in a manner or in a way that that pleases him. Now, notice also that the, uh, the result of these nations worshiping in Jerusalem will be universal peace. In other words, God is going to directly intervene. It talks about it here, of settling disputes between the nations. So again, this is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Next comes in this chapter another um, reference to restoration of the remnant of people. Uh, A promise that God's going to restore a certain amount of people, a certain remnant of the people, back to their land. And these are great words of comfort. Look at verse (coughs) 6. In that coming day, says the Lord, I will gather together those who are lame, those who have been in exile, and those uh, whom I have filled with grief. So he gives the comfort. And then he's going to make three really amazing contrasts. A contrast of, he's been talking about distress, and now he's going to talk about deliverance. Look at verse 9. But why are you now screaming in terror? Have you no king to lead you? Have your wise people all died? Pain has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. And in the last part of verse 10. But, notice this contrast. But the Lord will rescue you there. He will redeem you from the grip of your enemies. And then comes a contrast from siege to victory in verse 11. Now, how many, uh, uh, now many nations have gathered against you. Let her be desecrated, they say. Let us see the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 13. He's speaking to Jerusalem here. Rise up and crush the nations, O Jerusalem, says the Lord, for I will give you iron horns and bronze hoofs. That that talks about strength in battle. Um, So that you can trample many nations to pieces. You will present their stolen riches to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. And then the final contrast from helpless ruler to ideal king. And I want to slow down here for a moment. Because these verses are going to contain some very precious promises concerning the coming Messiah. We're going to learn his birthplace. We're going to learn his lineage. So look, beginning at at, uh, Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. Now, here's a picture of a helpless ruler a ruler who gets struck in the face. This probably is referring to the very last king of Judah, King uh, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was treated very harshly by the Babylonians. In fact, uh, he, he had to witness his sons being executed, and then they put his eyes out, gouged his eyes out, so that the last thing he'll ever remember seeing would be the death of his sons. So he was treated horribly. And so this maybe is a picture of him being struck in the face. Uh, 
But contrast that with a new ruler that's coming in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from distant past. Who's he talking about? Jesus, exactly. He goes on and he says in verse 3, the people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman gives birth, uh, woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world. Here is the ideal leader who's going to bring deliverance to God's people. And he's going to bring peace. This is Jesus, the Messiah, who's coming. And then in verse 5, he says, And he, meaning the Messiah, will be the source of peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, the Assyrians here really was gonna, is going to stand for any enemy that would come against God's people. When the Assyrians invade our land and break through our defenses, we will appoint seven rulers to watch over us and eight princes to lead us. They will rule Assyria with drawn swords and enter the gates of the land of Nimrod. He will rescue us from the Assyrians when they pour over the borders to invade our land. So here is a picture that God is going to go to war against the enemies of Israel. Uh, that whenever God's people are threatened with extermination, God is going to be the one who's going to enable them to, uh, to stand firm. And, and the idea being to raise up enough capable leaders that can lead them in those times of difficulty. Uh, the thought of seven leaders and eight princes uh, in, in the Hebrew uh, ideology, seven and eight was, was a type of Jewish way of saying many or more than enough leaders are going to be there. Chapter five is going to conclude with some words of encouragement uh, to the Jewish people just to hold on. Um, you know, this remnant will inherit the land regardless of what the immediate future might hold. There is a bright future out there. There's going to be a remnant that's going to remain true to the covenant relationship with the Lord God. Then we come to round number three, the last cycle of, of doom and then hope. And this section begins with an indictment of uh, Judah for unfaithfulness to the covenant relationship with God. And again, the initial words, hear, listen. And the people are being called to defend themselves. It's, it's like God has brought them into a court of law and he's going to say, now you're on trial Defend yourself. Look at verse 1. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaint. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people, and he will bring charges against Israel. And so in the verses that follow here, God is going to rehearse all the ways that the people of Judah have sinned. All those people that he watched over and provided for. You know, he talks about, man, look what I did for you in the Exodus. How I brought you out of Egypt. How I provided for you. How I took care of you. How I gave you the land of promise. And, and these children of Israel should have responded to God. Uh, with, to God's grace with kindness and mercy toward, toward him. And, and love and faithfulness and obedience. But they didn't do this. And that's why God is indicting them. Uh, <clears throat> he talks about the giving of the law of Moses. And think about it. Even the law given to Moses 
ought to be considered as an expression of God's love because it set guidelines for God's people of how to be in relationship with him and how to be in relationship with each other. Uh, keep in mind, of course, the law was never given as a way of salvation. Instead, it was a way to enjoy the fullest life that God wanted them, them to have, a life filled with God's blessings. So Micah now is calling on them to return to their primary relationship with God that they were created for. What he's going to say is that, you know, the worship that you pull off, all those sacrifices that you give, all those offerings that you bring, they are no substitute for the kind of life that God really desires from you. And so we come to Micah chapter 6, verse 6. These are words that you probably have heard frequently. Uh, we even use them in the halls of justice here in our nation. Um, Micah says, what can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offering should we give him? Should we bow before the Lord with offerings of yearling calves? Shall we, should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? You know, the answer is obvious. Look at verse 8. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There are three things there that God desires from us, from you and from me. First of all, he wants us to act justly. Don't just talk about justice. Act justly. Get involved in helping bring justice to people all around us, treating people fairly and, and treating people with dignity. As believers in Christ, that's what we ought to be about, helping the downtrodden, helping those that society has left behind. We need to act justly. And then the second thing is we're to love mercy. And that is it really just showing compassionate love toward other people. <clears throat> in other words, mercy is not treating them according to what they deserve, but in treating them with love and kindness and, and consideration, treating them like God's desires. And then the last thing he mentions there, we're to walk <clears throat> humbly before our God. That simply means we need to live the way that God desires, the way that pleases God. Here's the thing, folks, because we have been forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ, the natural result of our lives ought to be that we strive daily to live out our faith in everything that we do to reflect God in our life and to, and to live as he desires. Our lives ought to be characterized by acts of compassion and, com and kindness and mercy and justice and showing the love of God to everyone we meet. That's really the heart of true Christianity. That's what Micah is calling his people to do. Live like the people of God, reflecting God's, uh, God's love to everyone. Chapter 6 then concludes with some further charges against God's unfaithful people. You know, they're indicted for their dishonesty and business practices, for their lying, for their acts of violence. And he says, because of these things, God is going to give you a life of futility and frustration and scorn and, and, and destruction. Now, let me pause for a moment. <clears throat> I think all of us would agree that America is facing trouble days. Um, now and, and into the future. How does that make you feel? Um, <clears throat> do you ever feel saddened by the situation? I, I know we get mad. 
Do you ever get saddened when you contemplate what's going on in our nation? It, it wouldn't hurt us, folks, every once in a while to do just a little mourning before God over our nation. To weep over what's become of our country. To lament over our sad spiritual condition as a nation. See, that's what Micah does as he begins to close out this book. <clears throat> he grieves over the plight of Judah. And so chapter 7, verse 1, how miserable I am. I feel like the fruit picker after the harvest who can't find anything to eat. Not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. The godly people have all disappeared. Not one honest person is left on the earth. They're all murderers setting traps even for their own brethren. So Micah is expressing his grief, his mourning over the land that is so abandoned God. But then out of that comes this astounding declaration of trust. Uh, these words ought to be our words as well. I mean, we're living where, where Micah lived. But there is still the opportunity to put our trust in God, the God of all creation. Micah 7, 7. As for me, Micah says, I look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently for God to save me, and my God will certainly hear me. You and I can be confident Regardless of how rotten this country has become, regardless of how uncertain this future is, God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign Lord. He is still in control. So what follows then in this chapter is a, as he closes it out is a declaration of hope. In, in, uh, that, that hope will really become reality for God's people. And he expresses this through, through a very beautiful psalm um, that expresses trust in God and, and declares that God has compassion for his people. And then finally he comes to a beautiful prayer. Uh, it's really an amazing uh, praise him to God that, that could be a prayer. Look at verse 18. He says, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? <clears throat> you will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. See, he closes this book with this, this hymn of praise showing God, your grace and your truth are incomparable. There's nothing that can match these at all. You have shown faithfulness to your people and you will also continue to show faithfulness. You, you're going to be unfailing in your covenant relationship, your covenant love to your people. <clears throat> you know, at one time in history, uh, among the Orthodox Jews, um, on the afternoon of the new year, the men would, would make their way to any nearby stream or a nearby uh, river, and they would symbolically empty their pockets of their sins. And as they did that, they would quote these verses. Where is another God like you 
who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised our ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. What a great celebration. God has taken our sins and put them at the bottom of the sea. That ought to be something to celebrate. <clears throat> Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Micah. And at the very end of that commentary, he ended it by quoting a prayer from St. Jerome centuries and centuries ago, who also wrote a commentary on the book of Micah. I want to close this morning by sharing with you the prayer that St. Jerome wrote, that Martin Luther quoted. It really ought to be our prayer as well. So let's pray. <clears throat> oh God, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, passes by the transgressions of the remnant of your people, who retains not your anger forever because you delight in mercy? You have turned to us again and have had compassion on us. You have subdued our iniquities and have cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Oh, preserve unto us this your mercy forever and ever, so that we may walk in the light of your word and escape all dangers threatening us from Satan and the world. Through Jesus Christ, your Son and our Redeemer. Amen, amen, amen.